master's degrees and my PhD uh, development, development site. And um, work clinically and then research-wise and then do trainings on trauma and brain development. And specifically in the zero to five population, because the majority of your brain development happens then. Um, I'm also a posthumous adaptive parent, and so I didn't really intend for my life to sort of all be around this, this idea of trauma, but here we are. We have five kiddos currently, three are adapted out of foster care and two biological, and we did foster care for about 10 years. So I get the opportunity to do two sessions today, but this session for our next hour, we're going to look at really what trauma is and how it changes a person. Um, and certainly you can think of the students that we are working with, but this isn't really student-specific. So if we think about like, why we even care about this idea of trauma, it could be that that's your question or question that your school asks or parents sometimes ask or things like that. And certainly it's because of COVID, right? Um, the past few years have been significantly stressful for a lot of people, even though that's been different for different families. It's one of those trauma events where it's the first global trauma event. I kind of expected an alien invasion to be the first one. Uh, and then we not only had a global trauma event, but rather than uniting everybody, it didn't. Because while everybody went through the same storm, we were on very different boats. And so it created just kind of a lot of trickiness, um, and it separated communities and different things like that. So that's a piece of but even before the pandemic hit, we have been feeling that students have changed, particularly over the past decade. Um, some schools, particularly public schools, more at-risk schools, have been feeling this for a little while, but it has kind of shifted. Um, a lot of the Christian schools that I work with, even if their families specifically like, don't have significant histories of trauma, a lot of them now have high adoption rates, so you're importing it um, and bringing it in. And so like, there's pieces that are related to that. Uh, the dry epidemic, of course, is a reason. Uh, I would argue that the world is not really more stressful than it has been in the past, but we are so globally connected that you can wake up, check social media, and be stressed out about things all over the world. So the sheer number of stressors that are getting families is significantly higher. But the, the one that I really want to kind of draw to your attention is that for about the past three generations, we've seen this gradual breakdown of community. That it used to be that when families were struggling, other people stepped in. That were, it might be families, so grandparents, the aunt uncles, it might have been the neighbors saw kids running around and invited them to dinner, church people were in your business. Like there was a whole kind of community that if kids were being hurt or at high risk, other people naturally sort of stepped in, short-term and long-term. But we've seen that decrease over about three generations. And now, when we raise children, we do it very independently. Like even non-at-risk families, congratulations on your new baby, but you drive home, open your garage door, close your garage door, and you're on your own. And parenting at its best is still never done individually, independently. Parenting should always be done with the community. And as soon as we start taking that community away, we start risking a whole lot of other pieces. Arguably, for kids in the United States, schools are one of the only last communities consistently left. It's one of the reasons that schools have held so much why so much has fallen on schools. But one of the things that we're going to look at in a minute is that because of this decrease in community and taking away relationships, we're getting hit harder when bad things do happen. And that's particularly true for kids. But we also have this conversation for you. First, thanks for still being here. Okay, like I work with educators a lot. And over the past couple of years, not all of them have shown back up. So I'm being very sincere when I tell you, like, thanks for coming back. You didn't have to. Uh, and it's been a rough two years. And more and more educators are feeling burnt out. And you don't burn out because stuff is hard. You can do hard stuff for a really long time if you feel like you're being effective. You burn out because it's hard and you feel like you're hitting your head against the wall. 
And when you are hitting your head against a wall, particularly with students, then it feels like, why am I even here? Because it's not like the other stuff makes it worthwhile, right? Like, when we're thinking about, you know, lesson prep and meetings and pay and all of those things, that doesn't make the work that you do typically worthwhile. But if you feel like you're being impactful with students, then it kind of balances it out, right? But when you feel like you're hitting your head against the wall with students, then you're like, okay, like, why am I here? And so I want to help you feel like you have a better understanding of who these kids are, why they're different, and why our perspectives of them need to change. Now, some of you may be familiar with the idea of um, the NTSS model or the multi-tiered system of support, so that's something that's made its way, and I'll show you a picture of this in the next slide. But one of the things that I want you to understand is that when we are talking about trauma today, we're not talking about what we might consider the typical child. Traditional research on childhood and child development and on education has historically been about this typical child that really isn't so typical anymore, and maybe really ever wasn't, because the typical child is the kid who shows up for research studies, right? So it's the white middle class kid who lives in a university town, and his parent has the luxury to bring them to a laboratory study. Like, that's who's been in our research for decades and decades. Head Start was actually one of the first to help shift that conversation. But what we have realized over the past several years, about the past couple of decades, actually, is that our research is applicable to only a subset of students that might not be the kids we're actually working with anymore. And yet we're still trying to use those same strategies. Just to kind of throw, like, one piece in there, if you're familiar with the idea of attachment theory, like secure attachment and insecure attachment, when I started this work about 20 years ago, the statistics still showed that about 70% of the kids in the United States had a secure attachment, meaning the majority of kids in the United States were confident that caregivers were going to consistently meet their needs. Pre-COVID data, I don't have now current data yet, pre-COVID data suggests that the numbers have almost flip-flopped and now approximately 60 or so percent of kids in the United States have an insecure attachment, meaning the majority of kids in a traditional population are not confident that grown-ups are going to be safe and meet their needs. That shift in and of itself helps explain how we have kind of felt this, this difference in the kids that we're working with. Everybody was hit by the pandemic and the stress, and even the parents who said, like, no, my kid is totally fine. We've kept that all from them. I get the kid by themselves, and they're like, no, no, no. Like, this is actually kind of scary. I had several kids who told me they wanted to make sure they got young teachers because they knew that COVID hit old people harder and they didn't want their teachers to die. Okay. Um, I had several kids that stopped eating at school because they were concerned about taking off their masks. Uh, like, there's just lots of pieces and stress about that, and it hit everybody in so many different ways. But when we're talking about trauma work, and barring from this multi-tiered system of support that talks about how we have three tiers in a school setting, trauma work should be housed at our base level tier one. This should be school climate, school culture. This should be grounded in gen ed work. Trauma's work obviously also needs to hit at those higher levels of tiers where in a uh, traditional school setting we might consider like 504 IEP kind of areas, okay, where we put in extra support, bring in extra bodies. But trauma work really needs to be just school culture, and here's why. Brains change with repetitive experiences. So when a kid walks in, and have this trauma history that they're carrying with them that lives in their bodies, and they come into your classroom, and as one teacher, maybe you, is doing things differently, their brain goes, okay, this is cool, but this is not really how this world works, so I'm going to keep all my regular strategies, too. And that kid might learn to do life differently with you, but not anywhere else in that building. But when they walk in, and from like bus driver to board member, the entire system is different, the brain literally goes, hold up, it gets really curious, and says, 
This is different, and you need to learn how to do life differently here. And the brain gets primed to give up old strategies and discover new ones. So if you want the work to be faster and more effective, you make this community-wide. You make this how you live life. I would argue that's also a really effective approach to churches, but that's not why I asked to speak about that today. <laughs> so trauma-informed perspectives, though, really can be used community-wide. So you don't have any responsibility to look at a kid and be like, okay, here's my roster. Which kids have trauma and which don't? Like, that is not your job. You get it wrong anyway. Our research suggests that at least in your population, at least about 25% of kids has probably been hit hard enough by trauma that it's impacting them in their fashion. And 25% is not a small number. But more specifically, advances in neuroscience have helped us to understand that everybody kind of can go to what we often will call trauma brain. What that means is everybody gets dysregulated. So here's one of the secrets you really need to walk away with today. We falsely think of the brain as a thinking organ. Your brain is not a thinking organ. Your brain is a really fast doing organ that out of all of the parts to it just happen to have a couple of parts that think. But the brain is not a thinking organ. You have two parts to think, your frontal lobe and your prefrontal cortex. Those are the slowest parts to develop and they are the slowest acting parts of your brain. The rest of your brain just does what the brain does and it does it super speed. And the more stressed out you get, the farther back in your brain you go, which means you leave those thinking parts and you go back to those doing parts. All of us get there. All of us give up logic and start holding on to emotion and get stressed out. We all go to that space of dysregulation. And when we do, we benefit from what we would typically hear called trauma-informed strategies. It's just that most people visit that space and so benefit from those strategies when they're there. And kids who have that history of developmental trauma live in that space. So they require those strategies on a regular basis. So, for example, like if I'm having a really rough day and somehow I feel like somebody has wronged me, I don't want somebody coming in and saying, Steph, I need you to take a deep breath and calm down. Let's think logically about this, okay? I actually am very likely to text my friend Angie, who is going to respond very consistently with something like, tell me who they are, I will cut them for you. Okay? Like, she's this wonderful social worker, she's super sweet, but that is her really lovely emotional response. And then after, by the way, I do that, like I've got this entire string of text threads where I go from Angie to another friend to another friend, and what they do is they help me organize my brain and bring it back to a space of regulation. So then I go to like Julie, who's like, tell me how this feels, like what is going on with your feelings? And then I go to Myra and text Myra, and she's like, man, like let's think about what is happening with your body like right now, like where are you feeling this? And then I go to Darcy, who's like, okay, what do we need to do, right? And so I've built with relationships this capacity within this friend group to help regulate my brain back to where it's thinking. But I really, and I don't always need that, but I benefit from that support. I feel heard and seen and held. And so if you have a kid in front of you, regardless of whether it's that their blood sugar got low, they stay up too late, their parents are divorcing, they're freaking out about a test, their boyfriend broke up with them, or they have an entire history of trauma, if they are dysregulated in front of you, then trauma-informed strategies and things like that bring their brain back into this organized thinking space, okay? And so that's why we think of this really as a universal approach. It's just some people need it more than others. So let's get a trauma definition now and talk about how it works. So a trauma event is any event that's deeply stressful. It can be physical, it can be psychological, but that doesn't mean we're traumatized. Humans can go through tons of trauma events and not come out traumatized. All of us have trauma events in our history. It's just part of life. Now, we do have to 
different number of adults that what we think of as really stressful is different than what kids think of as really stressful. And so when we are assessing trauma events that kids have been through, we have to make sure we understand their experience, not our judgment of that experience. That's true for humans in general. So when we think about trauma in a school setting, what we're really talking about is not the events. We're talking about the brain and body's response to that event, and specifically the response that doesn't go away even when the event is done. Because most brains and bodies, after a trauma event, need time and support, and they'll be fine. They might be different. We're all different when we go through gross stuff. But that doesn't mean we're traumatized. And so if you go into a car accident, and you have a blood pressure increase, and a respiration increase, and your heart rate increases, and you release all these hormones and neurotransmitters and things like that, that's normal, that's healthy, we want to see that. In fact, if you get into a car about like six weeks after the car accident, and you still have a stress response when you find yourself sitting in the car, we still consider that normal. Most brains and bodies need time and support, and they'll be okay. If you're still having that stress response, like six months after the car accident, now we're getting concerned. We're talking about traumatization. Now, there is a difference between a traditional PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder that might come from a car accident or from um, being in the military or you know anything like that, cancer diagnosis, there's a difference between that and what we would call developmental trauma. And the difference is, when you have a traditional PTSD, your trauma is about one thing. It's about cars. It's about hospital stuff and all things medical. It's about anything that reminds me of being in the military or in a combat zone. And so my stress responses, which are symptoms of trauma, are also going to be triggered by this kind of symptom or by those triggers. So loud noises, fireworks, uh, the smell of alcohol or a hospital. But when we have developmental trauma, what that means is that the kids basically grew up in a stress environment. And so their entire brain was developed around that high level of stress. And so it's not just that one area or one uh, kind of structure or component of life is stressful, it's that life in and of itself is a triggering event that they always need to be prepared for. So one of the reasons that I want to challenge you not to just get hung up on finding kids' triggers. So finding triggers is helpful sometimes, but the reality is, is that kids with developmental trauma have millions of triggers. You can't control all of them. And even if somehow you could, that's not healthy. Like, I worked with a kid once who red shirts a particular cologne and Fridays were trauma triggers. Why? His dad wore red shirts for work. I was part of his work uniform and wore the specific cologne. Fridays were payday, which is when he could come home drunk from alcohol that he bought, and the abuse would occur. A trauma-informed school does not ban red shirts, control what people smell like, and cancel schools on Fridays, right? And so your job is not to just control all of the triggers. The job of being trauma-informed is to be aware that that can happen and to help kids recover from the stress if they are triggered. But if you get stuck on just finding all of those triggers, well, you're just patching holes all of the time. There's way too many of them to kind of be able to control, and we don't want that. Now, we do often think of big T traumas and little T traumas. Big T traumas are the trauma events that everybody realizes are bad, right? Like child abuse, death of a parent. Little T traumas are often normal life stressors, but I still found them really, really distressing. That could be a parental divorce. It could be uh, that one time mom forgot to pick me up after soccer practice, right? If I found that really distressing, that can still be a little T trauma, even if it's normal in life and all humans go through it. And the tricky thing is that trauma is cumulative. And at some point, your brain will tip from like thrive to survive. We all have a different tipping point. And certainly those big T traumas weigh on those scales more, but the little T traumas can stack up and also shift the scales. So when we look 
of the time to kids who have been through gross stuff and kids who are actually traumatized is actually whether they had safe relationships to help them. Relationships for humans, but really specifically for kids, humans in general for sure, but kids specifically, are the biggest predictor of whether I can get through an event with time and support or whether I'm going to be traumatized. Bruce Perry is a neuropsychiatrist in this field, and he talks about how you can have a stable caregiver carry a kid out of a burning building, and that child experiences less stress and trauma than another kid where the adult completely loses it and dysregulates in a panic after watching the kid fall off of their bike. For kids and trauma, the event matters, and it's really a kind of a small piece of the story. What matters most for kids is a caregiver's response to the trauma event, not the event itself. Which raises the question then, who are your kids' grown-ups? And so certainly, any trauma event that would bring a kid into foster care is super heavy. Because the very nature of those events means that the caregiver was not able to support that child, right? But how many of you deal with parents who just work lots of hours? If you have parents with really intense jobs, so they're always working, who's at home? Um, how often do we rotate babysitters in and out, right? How many of you work with anxious parents? If you have an anxious parent who's just sort of always like this and can't even regulate themselves, how do you expect them to be there and support the kid with their distress? Or, I come from a community, it's a lovely place, my office is over in Holland, Michigan, you can come visit. Um, it's a wonderful place to visit, but we have a rule in our Holland area, and that's that if you see anything yucky, please do us the courtesy of sweeping it under the rug, okay? <laughs> We're happy to have you, but like, don't bring anything yucky, and if you find something yucky, don't just ignore it and pretend it's not there. What that realistically means for me and my practice and some of the families I work with is that I can have a fabulous family who is so intent on ignoring whatever is happening over here that their kid is still going through it alone, right? But it also means that the relationship work that you guys have done and continue to do is invaluable. There has not been a learning loss in schools. You know what there has been? A miraculous amount of learning that took place in a global freaking pandemic. Like, I am so impressed with what educators have actually managed to do in the past few years. You shouldn't have been able to do anything. But kids did learn some stuff. That's amazing. And you know what else? They felt protected. And meals were prepared and brought. And families were followed up on. And middle health into place. You can't say or claim there has been a global learning loss or a learning loss in your school if the data you're comparing that to is other times there's not a global trauma event, right? Like, because I do trauma work, I was immensely involved and enmeshed in all the COVID pandemic stuff and supporting that. And when that first hit, you know what I had to look at to prepare? I had to look at, like, how we did school in refugee camps. How we did school in war zones. Like, that was the basis of what we were able to do. The relationship work that we did over the past few years is the reason why some of the concerns and fears we had about kids didn't come to fruition. Like, it really is nothing short of a miracle that we are not doing worse than what we are. Because we protected, because we showed up, and we were there, and we kept doing relationship work. The other piece that I want to point out, though, is just this very quickly, I'm going to point to a field of study called epigenetics. Epigenetics looks at how our environmental experiences can turn on and off genes, okay? Um, this can happen at any point in life, but we're both susceptible to this in infancy, even prenatally, young childhood. And one of the uh, variables that is most likely to modify genetic expression is stress. 
But it does it differently if you have to go through stress within relationships or have, if you have to go through stress outside of relationships. If you have to go through stress and you don't have protective relationships to help buffer that, then genes are turned on that basically promote vulnerability. Genes for addiction and depression and anxiety and cancer and heart disease. And interestingly, once those genes are turned on in our own bodies, then we have the possibility of passing that down to our offspring, just like we would pass down our genes for hair color or eye color. So in a very real way, the experiences of our ancestors continue to live in our bodies. In contrast, if you have to go through stress, but you go through it in relationships, then genes can still get turned on, but they're more likely to be genes that promote resiliency. We talk about resiliency, we throw that word around, but we miss the fact that resiliency cannot be developed outside of the context of relationship. And if we have relationships where we're going through stress and we turn on genes that promote resiliency, then we can pass those genes down to our offspring. Here's one of the things I think that just really encourages me and I hope encourages you in your long-term work. The relationship work that you do with your students, because of how it can impact their actual genome, will have impacts to your community for generations to come. The relationship work that you do with your kids that turns on resiliency genes that they then pass on to their kids have impacts then for generation after generation and after generation. Like, how much more miraculous and biblical can you get there? Briefly, I want to go into a couple of pieces of information about types of trials, but I want to give you just a couple of um, overarching ideas. Now, some of you may be familiar with the idea of ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. Just to help you understand where this fits, neurodevelopmental trauma is this overarching umbrella. ACEs is a subsection, okay? So that's how those two pieces fit together, just so you're familiar with that. One of the pieces that I want you to understand is that if the trauma event happens with a parent-child relationship, either the caregiver's actions, like in abuse, or the caregiver's failure to act, like in neglect, or failure to protect, or maybe significant depression, that kind of trauma hits kids particularly hard, and it puts the child into what Alicia Lieberman has called the impossible psychological dilemma. That the person I want to turn to for help is also the person that terrifies me. Now let me back up a minute and help you understand that a bit more. If you have, as a human, if you are stressed out and sense another human in your vicinity, your brain tends to activate one of two pathways. Either approach, go to that person, they can help you, or avoid, stay away, they can hurt you more. And normally that's a pretty clear-cut message your brain will automatically give. When the caregiver is the source of the trauma, both of those pathways get activated simultaneously, and it creates a very profound neurological disorganization. And the brain doesn't know whether to go or to stay away. Because I do individual health work, I've seen this time and time again. One time, probably the clearest time I've ever seen this, was with a little baby in foster care, like seven months or so, bumped her head on the table, very mildly, right? And gave an appropriate stress response of crying a little bit, arms outstretched to foster mom, like, pick me up. And so a foster mom came in and scooped her up, like mom should do to help calm that baby. The baby got about right here, and you could see that other path switch on, and was like, nope, can't do it. And so started shoving away. And so mom put her back down, and the baby cried harder. Like, but I need you, help me. And so mom came and picked her back up, and baby got here, and was like, no, no, you're scary. And started pushing away, and arching her back, and breaking eye contact, and so mom put her down. And baby's like, I still need you. And so cried harder, getting more and more distressed and dysregulated. And so mom picked her up. And baby's like, I can't do this. Why do you keep doing this to me? And starts trying to scratch at mom and pull mom's hair and headbang mom. So mom puts her down. And baby cries even harder. Why are you abandoning me? Why are you helping me when I need you? And so mom picks her up. And baby's not allowed now to hurt mom. And so baby tries to self-harm by scratching her own face and biting herself and pulling her hair out. And they did that up-down disorganized dance, and that's called disorganized attachment. 
They did the up-down dance until baby eventually dissociated and went to sleep. Okay. And I just remember watching that and wondering how many times a bio mom with her own history of abandonment and rejection have been able to tolerate that before saying, like, like you know what, you're on your own, right? Which means we took away any chance that mom was able to step in and soothe and buffer that. As kids get older, what does this look like? The kindergartner who loves you one minute and hates you the next. It's the kid who looks like they're running in for a hug and then at the last second they kicks you in the shin, right? It's the kid who might not signal at all to you and then gets mad that you didn't notice they needed help. It's the kid who, as a teenager, you pour all of this time and support into and then it looks like they just sabotage it. Well, what the heck? I just wasted my time. If you ask older students, particularly teenagers, why they do this, you know what they will tell you? I don't know. That's what they'll say. I've also heard them often add, do you know what's wrong with me? Why would I push away something that I know I really want? Like, how screwed up can a person be? This is not manipulation. This is not intentional. This is a brain that does not know which message to listen to because of the yucky stuff it has been through. And so it's disorganized, it's confused, and it is terrified. I have worked with kids, I have parents of kids, who have screamed at me things like, I need you, but don't come here because I might hurt you. Ugh. I would never look at them and say they were doing that on purpose just to mess with me or control me or whatever else. They're hurting, they're terrified. And that is a hallmark of the kind of trauma that comes out of parent-child relationships. The other piece that I want to just kind of give you that's overarching is that when trauma events happen to young kids, so think that five and under in particular, they assume it's their fault. That they assume that somehow they can control that. And I know that that seems really weird, but especially if you teach this age, you know these kids are naturally egocentric. They're black and white, and they think the whole world revolves around them. So if mom's in a good mood, it's because I'm awesome, and if mom's in a bad mood, it's because I'm terrible. It is really common for kids at this age to assume they cause all the bad stuff in their life. Somehow they're responsible for their parents' divorce. Or that they're responsible for mom's mood or depression. And certainly that they're responsible for their own abuse. And I hear this all the time. If I were just a better kid, mom would not be you. If I were not such a problem, if I didn't make so much trouble, dad would work harder to get me out of foster care. And because of this, one of the super common symptoms of developmental trauma is that these kids carry with them an incredibly intense sense of shame. They believe, I am an unlovable, bad person. And they carry that around. And some of these kids look like Eeyore, right? Other kids will kind of flip that, and they'll falsely overinflate it. And this is the kid who has to be first in line, and who has to win the game, and who has to be the best at something, or they get angry or they won't try. Sometimes we'll see a slightly healthier version, and these are the kids who um, figure out they're really good at something, like soccer or academics, and they'll pour everything into that, but yet they freak out if they don't score the one goal or if they got a 96 instead of a 100%. And the idea behind that is there's nothing about me that's lovable, but if I'm really, really great at this, maybe there's something there that you'll like. But if you take that away, there's nothing left. And so this, by the way, is one of the reasons why strategies like reinforcement might not be effective. So let's say you have a kid who you're struggling with, let's say you teach elementary. You go home on Friday and you are so done. Saturday you chill, Sunday you rally. And you're like, okay, what do I know? You go back to like early college and behavior management classes and you create like a Pinterest-worthy sticker chart, okay? You laminate it on your home self-laminator. You put up a target to get a reinforcer, and you bring that on Monday, ready to sell the heck out of that thing. And you go to this kid, and you're like, look, if you can have this behavior all week long, you get the prize. Don't you want the prize? And the kid's like, yes, I want the prize. Now, a couple of quick notes. For the majority of kids with developmental trauma, it doesn't matter what the prize is. This is not going to work. We'll talk about why. You'll have some kids, they get so excited about the idea of the prize that they 
when the heart rate went up and the respiration went up and the stress hormones went up, that meant danger, danger, bad stuff is coming. Then when you offer me the prize, or we go on the field trip, or we have the class party, or I just get overly excited at recess, and my heart rate, and my respiration, and my hormones go up, my brain will eventually go, oh, don't worry, I'm back. And it will flip the brain into a stress response. Some kids cannot handle higher levels of arousal without support, or they will dysregulate. But let's say that this, I don't know, nine-year-old is living in a pretty, like, stable home environment and has already had 22 years of therapy under his belt, okay? And so he gets excited about the prize and he holds it together. Monday goes well. You keep your fingers crossed. Tuesday goes well and you like you feel yourself holding your breath. Wednesday, you're like, oh my gosh, why didn't I do this before? It goes well too. Thursday goes well and you go and feel like a rock star. Friday, you come in and you look at this kid and you say, look, we've almost done it. You finish out today strong, you get the prize. I knew you could do it. I knew you were an awesome kid. And that kid goes, look around. You think I'm awesome. I'd love to believe that, don't get me wrong, but I'm not. And sooner or later, everybody finds out the truth. I'm terrible. I'm unlovable. If I let myself fall for this, only then to have you reject me? Nope. I am not doing that again. Guess we better get this over with. And then sometimes the behavior you see in front of you is worse than what you created the sticker chart for in the first place. And I see your faces, and you're like, and that kid sees your face and says, oopsie, knew you'd find me disgusting. Glad we got that done. When brains don't even believe that they are worth loving, reinforcement is not likely going to be a good strategy. Do you know how many meetings I have sat on with educators where they all look around and go, we just can't figure out what reinforces this kid? Or I actually had a phone call from a school, one of my own kids, just a couple of weeks ago, and in the phone call they asked, do you know what motivates her? I laughed. I felt bad, but I couldn't help it. Um, I think I actually said ice cream, because at that moment, that was like what she was motivated by. I'm not saying that that's a healthy motivation. Uh, it's just that sugar is very reliable in helping you feel better, right? And my kids are figuring this out. So we will see these sorts of things. Other kinds of really common traumas. Physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, neglect is the biggie up here for young kids. Out of all of these things, neglect is the one that we can't change if we get them past the age of five in particular. Why? Because neglect is the absence of experience. And brains are developed based off of experience. Brains grow with experiences. And so when you have a chronic absence of stimulation, you have a brain that has nothing to grow off of. So even in lower levels of neglect, you're going to see IQ drops, language delays, um, learning disorders, uh, anxiety issues. But with more significant neglect, you will see intellectual disabilities, or what we previously called mental retardation. And there's a lot in trauma work that you can shift. You can't build a brain to fault. But yet neglect accounts for about 80% of child welfare referrals. It's a biggie. Exposure to domestic violence is also another big one that people don't really recognize. Um, exposure to domestic violence, especially for young kids, hits them harder than if they had gone through that abuse to their own bodies. Why? Because they think they caused it. And it's one thing to feel like you're the reason you're getting abused, but if now you're the reason mom's getting abused, now you have one caregiver who terrifies you and another that can't take care of themselves. The disorganization that uh, domestic violence exposure creates is really significant and is associated with some of our most significant psychological outcomes too. Any separation from attachment figures, and that can be divorce, it can be parental incarceration, it can be a death, it can be I go to live with grandma and then aunt and then grandma and then mom, it can be uh, constant changing of babysitters, it can certainly be foster care, and it's also going to be adoption. Adoption is always a trauma, even if you were in the delivery room at birth. Okay? I will have adoptive parents who will say, like, I was in the delivery room. Why are they so traumatized? Because they were nine months ahead of you. And those nine months were really important. 
in terms of developing brain and developing relationship. And that baby expected that caregiver to be there. Like, good or bad, that was the expectation. Now, that doesn't mean that adoption is always traumatizing. It means it's always a trauma, right? Significant difference there. Untreated parental mental illness. Now, I don't want to stigmatize mental illness. I am thankful for both my medication and my therapist. What I am talking about is more profound stuff that is impacting caregivers' ability to be in tune and buffer for their kids. Parental, uh, sorry, prenatal drug or alcohol exposure, definitely a big one, whether we're talking prescriptions or street drugs, but alcohol is a big, you guys. So out of all of the substances, honestly, I would rather have, let me say this so it doesn't sound like I'm promoting one drug over the other. Neurologically, okay, uh, baby's going to have more cycle or neurological and physical outcomes if mom is regularly drinking alcohol than if mommy is regularly using heroin, okay? Alcohol is the big one. And this is a public health crisis. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorders are occurring at higher rates than autism spectrum disorders. And this is not just a, a high-risk population concern. Binge drinking is high-risk there. But even in what we would consider a low-risk population, wine has replaced Valium as mommy's little helper. And so we are having an increase in fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, and that is certainly a big piece of this. Uh, any kiddo in foster care in our area, okay, so basically what I assume are all of you guys, uh, I don't think any of you came from elsewhere, but in our kind of area right here, 80 to 90% of kids in foster care have a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Okay, so that's just kind of one number to kind of help you there. And then prenatal stress. If mom is stressed out and that cortisol gets to baby and the baby releases its own cortisol and that stress is kind of shifting brain development, too much cortisol doesn't just change brain development. We actually call it toxic stress because it acts as a poison and basically begins frying off parts of the brain. Too much stress hormone at any point in life, prenatally or when you're 92, will cause brain damage. And that might be able to be repaired, and it might not. Um, And so that can happen prenatally. Now, that being said, it is not the job of a pregnant person to avoid all stress, okay? Remember how we talked about how relationships buffer? That's because of what we call oxytocin. Oxytocin is my favorite hormone. You can have a favorite hormone, okay? And oxytocin, we call it the love hormone, the body hormone, and it's responsible for that feel-good sensation. Like when you look at your sleeping child and you're like, oh. Or maybe if you have been in a choir or a band and you almost have like this experience where it's just like, oh my gosh, this is so beautiful. When you're with a friend and you're laughing until you're crying, right? Like that's all oxytocin. Oxytocin not only helps you feel that life is good and going to be okay, neurologically, it basically downregulates stress. It turns off the cortisol release, okay? And so that's one of the ways that it protects, how relationships protect. So in a very simplistic way, when a kid is crying and we bring them in for a hug, we are helping, because of skin-to-skin contact, proximity, smell, etc., we are helping turn off their stress response systems. We maybe can't take away the physical pain, but we can take away some of the actual psychological stress related to that. Mom's kisses and dad's hugs, or the band-aid that the teacher gives, are all direct ways to support kids in stress. But just like cortisol can get to developing baby when mom's pregnant, so can oxytocin. So mom can be going through a ton of stress. But if she's rubbing the belly, dreaming about what to name this baby, picking out outfits, falling in love, that oxytocin also gets to baby and protects, just like it would outside of the uterus. Okay? So relationships work. We are meant to do life within relationships. It's the most protective and safe way to do it. Let's look just a few minutes at brain development. And if, by the way, some of you have printed off the PowerPoint, there are more slides there than we're covering today, so do not panic. If you are looking at how many are there, that's the old educator in me. Like, I just have to give you more information than I have time for. Uh, So let's look at brain development. We've talked already about how so much brain development happens in infancy. Actually, 90% of brain development happens 
prior to the age of three, 95% by the age of five. But from birth to three, based off of experience, we are forming approximately a million neural connections every second. So a million a second. Every time you've got that baby in front of you, you're like, hi, sweetie. You are perfect. I love you. Like, that is incredible neurological programming. Don't underestimate that. But the brain does not filter out the good stuff from the bad stuff. The brain assumes that the world it was born into is the world that it's going to be prepared for. And so when you have positive experiences that are loving and kind and buffering and attentive and that meet, meet your needs, you have a brain that is programmed to expect that from the world. And that's a kid that can get into your classroom and be like, what you got? Teach me, right? But when you have a brain that was built by unsafe, scary, unpredictable experiences where your needs didn't regularly get met and maybe you had to take care of yourself, that is not a child that can sit in your classroom and trust that you've got their back. The experiences that we go through, zero to five, well, prenatal to five, honestly, are the experiences that build the brain we're going to carry for the rest of our lives. Elementary teachers kind of understand this a little bit more. High school teachers often have this sort of like unconscious assumption that kids pop out of the uterus and start freshman year, okay? Like, you are carrying this entire history of experiences with you. And it's the reason I got into infant mental health. If you want to change the world, you can start with the babies or the grown-ups that care for them. So if you rebuild in stress, that toxic stress, one of the things that happens very, very consistently is that your stress response system gets programmed to stay in the on position. So if we open the brain, flip it open, and look in the middle there, that's the limbic system in there. So frontal lobe is here, prefrontal is here, limbic system is here. And that limbic system is several parts, but they all do negative affects like fear and anger, and they do stress responsivity. That limbic system scans for threat multiple times a second if it is on. Okay, so multiple times a second, scanning actually not just for threat, for possible threat. And it will often dump messages of safety because that's not the priority. And if it finds a possible threat, it will activate a stress response leading to, leading to fight, flight, freeze kind of behavior. And start to finish from I brought it to my brain, possible threat, to my body just acted out this behavior, that's 50 milliseconds. That's it. 50 milliseconds. Unfortunately for us, 50 milliseconds is not even enough time to get to these frontal lobes, let alone prefrontal, and think of the consequence. Ask for help. Use a coping skill. Use my words. 50 milliseconds is enough time to move my body so maybe I don't die. That's what that system is designed to help us do, to respond to stress very, very fast. One of the important reframes for the adults that work with these kids, though, is that when those stress behaviors come out, the lying, the stealing, the cussing, the aggression, the hiding, the eloping, the, I don't know, defiance, oppositionality, all fight, flee, fight flight, freeze behaviors, those behaviors are designed to protect me as the person not to hurt you. There's a significant difference. Most adults in prison for assault don't enjoy hurting people. They just learned somewhere along the lines that hurting people was the best way to stay safe. People who actually enjoy hurting other people, that's a whole other story. Okay? Like, I promise you, you are not just teaching a whole bunch of serial killers. Well, I was not prepared for how many times teachers would actually quietly whisper that concern to me. Like, I get that very regularly. I'm afraid that they might grow up to become a serial killer. If you ever question, like, does this kid not care how this affects the rest of the world? Yeah, the short answer is probably no, okay? And not because the kid's a jerk, but because the ability to care, to empathize, to perspective take, that's way up here, like in the left temporal parietal junction. So if I get stressed out because my sensory information brought that in and in 50 milliseconds my body responded, I didn't even have enough time to care. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to disrupt your class. I'm not trying to throw you off. I'm trying to keep safe because my brain has not been 
been taught that anybody else is going to do that work for me. These are not bad kids. They're good kids who have had bad things happen. Let's say I'm a gazelle at the savannah, okay? And I'm getting a drink of water at my local water hall. And I spy something coming to me, and maybe it's a log, maybe it's a crocodile. Like, nobody criticizes the gazelle that high tails that, right? Like, we don't look at that gazelle and talk about how they made bad choices or have poor impulse control, or maybe we should think about Adderall, right? Like, nobody does that. The gazelle does not have a prefrontal cortex, but let's give them one. So now this gazelle has a prefrontal cortex. The main jobs of the prefrontal cortex are thinking to the future, understanding consequences, and impulse control. That's the part of the brain that doesn't even start developing until three, grows very slowly through elementary school, picks up speed with puberty. On average, humans have full neurologic maturity with that prefrontal, the last thing to develop, at about 22. There is, just so you know, especially for those of you who teach high school, an average age or gender difference. Females tend to reach full neurologic maturity about 17 or 18. Males, 27, 28. Okay? <laughs> that is neurotypical development. That is not so. <laughs> but now let's say this gazelle has a prefrontal cortex and spies something coming to it. And it looks at it, and it pauses. And it takes a deep breath. I'm going to use my coping skills here. Statistically, and I'm going to jump to the conclusion and kind of give the benefit of the doubt. Do you know what happens to that gazelle? It's the end, right? The lion stays to fight. The gazelle runs in flight. That bunny in your yard curls up into freeze. Those are not bad choices. Those are safe behaviors for that environment. Nobody criticizes that. You don't go to the local zoo and talk about how that elephant made a bad choice. Let's say, though, let me try to take that one step further. Let's take one of my biological kiddos and put him with the brain that he has developed that's always going to love and safety into an abusive environment and say that he now sees an angry adult approaching him. You know what his brain is going to tell him to do? Go to that person to see if he can help. And you know what used to be my kid? An abuse victim. That's not a good choice. If you watch your kids' behaviors, they will tell a story about what their past experiences have been. And more often than not, those stories will break your heart, not make you mad at the kid. These are not bad kids. Their brains just develop differently. One of the things that you need to know is that when that brain develops differently and has learned to stay up here so it can handle lots and lots of stress, respond like that, you will say it's like they go from 0 to 90 in a split second. In reality, they're living at a constant 70. It doesn't take as much to go from 70 to 90 as 0 to 90, right? And that's the neurological, one of the significant neurological differences in this population. They have grown to be reactive. Now, I know this session is not focused on strategies. Here's one strategy that I think is really effective and easy to use. If it is not a safety issue and you see a reactive behavior, whether it's words or body or whatever else, and you'll know that the behavior just come out like that, just pause. Just pause and back up a second. Because quite frequently, that's all the space that brain needs to flip and get to these cortical areas and actually think and give you an intentional behavior. But too often when we see the reaction, we jump on the reaction and end up reinforcing it and not even giving enough time for that intentional good choice to come up to the surface. Let me give you an example of what happened. Let's say you came out to lunch. Your kids are kind of a hot mess, and you're trying to get them, like, organized and set back down. And so you say, like, okay, guys, like, you need to sit down. Come on. Well, what do adults do, by the way, when kids don't listen? We get louder, and we get deeper most of the time. Guys, come on. Listen up. We got to get class started. I know you have a big, like, I know, nice weather. Sit down. So most kids are now sitting down. But this one kid over here, let's call him Jacob, is not. Jacob, sit down. Come on, dude. Earth to Jacob, sit down. Then we pull one of these things. Jacob, sit down. Now, I want to tell you, 
The fever snap eyebrow raise is a time-trusted strategy. I'm not telling you to get rid of it. But, watch what my body did. As soon as I did this, I gave at least four direct signals of threat to every mammal across the globe. I pushed them into an approach, I made direct eye contact, I scrunched up my face so I'm no longer smiling, I deepened my voice more into a growl, and that brain that was busy scanning for threat after reset or lunch or whatever I told you it was, just found it. And within 50 milliseconds, that desk that he was supposed to sit down in just got tipped across the floor. But then what do we do? We escalate. So then he escalates in, in response. And then we escalate, he escalates. Maybe by the end of this, he's hit somebody. Now this kid is suspended. We're in a debrief with admin who looks at us and says, so what happened? And we say, I don't know. All I did was ask him to sit down. Sound familiar? So what would have happened if even if we had snapped our fingers and raised our eyebrows, even if we had done all of that, what would have happened if when the desk went over, and we realized, okay, this was not a safety issue. We didn't like go flying across the room. Just got tipped over. We just stepped back to waited. You want to want to know what a good portion of kids will actually do as long as we just look nonchalant? They will pick that desk up and sit their butts down. Because they needed those few seconds to get to frontal lobe and go, this wasn't an actual threat. I now can assess this. She asked me to sit down. I can sit down. And then they sit, and you reinforce that and ignore the desk flop. Okay? Even if you need to come back to a desk flop or whatever that behavior is, come back later. Like maybe not even that day. Ignore the reaction. Focus on giving the space for that intentional behavior. So I told you that we've been doing foster care, and then doing foster care for like 10 years. We have had at least 13 and a half years where one baby has been in the home at a time at least. Often we've had two. That has not been on purpose. I've actually donated baby stuff like three times and ended up with a new baby. That's my own boundary issue. We're not on happy time today. <laughs> but when I have had sleep deprivation, okay, it never occurred to me to walk over to the crib in the middle of the night, turn on my perky mom voice and say, sweetie, if you can give mom
And the best way to do that is to pull them into relationship, where you can do that regulatory work with them, because in relationship, whether it's being silly with laughter, or by asking about what they're doing, showing an interest in their life, we offer protection within that community. My contact information is here. You are welcome to use that as you need to. If you are interested in additional information, here is some kind of starter books. All of these are easy reads, except for Bomber and Hughes Settling to Learn. Settling to Learn is an incredible book, but it's very neuro-heavy, so just letting you know that. The Center on Developing Childhood over at Harvard has some great videos about how brain development happens. NCTSN also has a ton of free resources for educators related to trauma. Uh, we'll go down that route more quickly if you start looking at their resources, so just kind of know that. Thank you guys so much for your time this afternoon, and hope you have a great rest of your conference, and make sure to get